Dementia Researcher podcast, talking careers, research, conference highlights, and so much more. Hello, and welcome to the second of our Alzheimer's Association International Conference Highlight Shows. I'm Adam Smith, and all this week, I'm joined by different researchers each day who are going to share their best bits from the day's events. With hundreds of talks and thousands of posters, these shows are far from comprehensive. However, what we hope is to provide a snapshot of what's going on for those who aren't attending and perhaps inspire those that who are to check out something that they might have missed. But that's enough from me. Let's meet today's guests. I'm delighted to be joined by Shara Shodani and Dr. Aoife Cosgrave and Dr. Sonata Matruskita. Hello, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Everybody looks so nervous for uh, <laughs> if you're watching on audio, if you're listening on audio, um, everybody looks a bit nervous. Um, it'll be fine. Um, let's before we get going, let's do some introductions. And uh, because Shara looks the least nervous of all, I'm going to go to Shara first. Why don't you introduce yourself, Shara? Tell us about yourself. Great. Well, I'm Shara Jadani. I am originally from New Zealand, but currently working in Spain at the Sampa Memory Unit. Um, and my PhD, which I'm having my first year review for on Friday, um, is looking at small vessel disease in Down syndrome. And I'm mostly looking at neuroimaging for this at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you, Shara. So did you do your undergrad in New Zealand? Yes, I did. I did my undergrad, my master's degree over there. So that's a bit of a jump to go from New Zealand to Spain. I'm assuming you could have done it in New Zealand. Uh, what, what inspired you to move all the way to Spain? Um, I was very excited to move to Europe. Um, it was partially motivated by love, but I have stayed now for the research part of it. Oh, well done. We did an Ask Your Mentor podcast recently with Yvonne Couch, who told us how she moved countries as well. To her, She followed to her PhD to follow a boy, but didn't regret it at all. She said it was worked out perfectly. So I hope, I hope following for love has done the same for you. Anyway, uh, Aoife, why don't, why don't you go next? I, I moved on so quickly there, just in case. Uh, Aoife, why don't you go next? Hi, so I haven't come from as far as New Zealand, uh, so you can hear by my accent that I'm Irish and I finished my PhD a few months ago. Um, so it was working between a lab in Dublin and a lab in London, and it was looking at uh, phytocannabinoid compounds derived from the cannabis plant to see if they had any anti-inflammatory effects in um, a models of uh, acute neuroinflammation. Um, but then towards the end of my PhD, I realized I preferred to talk about my research and other people's research than doing the research. Um, and I really wanted to stay in the neuroscience area that feels. Um, and then a job with Alzheimer's Research UK came up and I started working with them two, three months ago now. And I'm a science communication officer for Alzheimer's Research UK. Um, yeah, so I'm getting the taste of it now, and I'm being at a I'm at a conference, but on the other side. We should say that, shouldn't we? That uh, Shara and Aoife, you're both actually in Amsterdam right now yes. at the conference, and yes, you've disappeared are. up to your rooms and escaped from the social stuff to to very kindly join us this evening to share your highlights. So that's Aoife, that that's a big change. Oh, I am interested mm -hmm. to know though. You said to, did cannabinoids have that? Did they work? So or are we waiting was... for the publication? <laughs> waiting for the publication, IP issues and 
it was okay. a, a screen of a few compounds and one in particular did show some nice effects brilliant um, so we should yes, keep an yeah. eye out for that paper then mm-hmm. thank you very much uh, sonata thank you for very patiently waiting why don't you introduce <laughs> yourself okay hello everybody um i have a little bit longer uh, postdoctoral experience not postdoctoral but post phd experience i defended my phd nine almost 10 years ago i i'm staying in academia but uh, i'm not doing the research either actually i'm from lithuania but i did my phd in finland differently than you you both so i'm from social sciences so um it's a little bit different <laughs> and uh, the topics which i cover will be a little bit different so what i'm doing now uh, to make long story short i'm a i'm i'm serving as a vice rector uh, for academic affairs at my university and also i'm uh, still keeping lecturing, I hold uh, a position of associate professor, and with my team of uh, uh, teaching assistants, I'm running courses on social policy and social gerontology. And I just still dream about returning back to research one day. Well, you you have another job as well, don't you? But you I, I, did I miss it there? But you also work with Alzheimer Europe. Uh, it's not a job, it's volunteering. Yes, I'm actually, I'm uh, a member of PPI panel, the patient public involvement panel. And I'm also uh, a chair of a new, newly established uh, European Dementia Carers Working Group. Fantastic. So everybody is ultimately qualified. And what I love is, is that we've got people working on, you know, all three of you work in so many different fields that we're gonna, you've all probably attended different sessions today, which is great because we, the last thing we want is you all to go to the same thing. Well, let's get on with the highlights. So Shara, I know you've been presenting this week. Why don't you tell us before we get on to uh, everybody else's highlights, tell us about your presentations, your posters. So this is my first year, my very first conference, and also my very first poster. That's brilliant, pres- though. Come on, who, <laughs> who, who can remember actually presenting at the first conference they attended? So usually you go to a few, you get a feel for things. So you're in the first year of your PhD, you've just moved countries, and you've got two posters at the biggest conference. Well done. That's amazing. Yes, I'm, I'm very blessed. Um, so... I am presenting my own work, which is looking at microbleeds in Down syndrome, um, which is a neuroimaging manifestation of small vessel disease or cerebral amyloid angiopathy. Um, so I presented that yesterday, which was wonderful, very great experience to have a lot of um, people who are actually leaders in the field come and ask me questions about my, my work. And then on Wednesday, I am also going to be presenting a colleague's work. Uh, She works with white matter hyperintensities. Her name is Alejandra Omaira Mocillo. And um, she has also been looking at a neuroimaging um, or neuroradiological manifestation of small vessel disease, which is white matter hyperintensities in Down syndrome. And I'm very excited to see if I will have some more people asking questions on Wednesday. So I'm going to put you on the spot and say, do you remember the poster numbers so we can encourage everybody who's listening or watching to to go away and check those out? 
Or they, um, can just, they can just go by your name as well. Yes, so. I have a very unique name. So, um, well, my one yesterday was number 19, but I'm afraid I do not know Alejandro's. That's all right. If you go, if you're watching online, uh, if you go to the platform and click on posters, it now allows you to search by surname or by first name. So if you search uh, S A R A for um, uh, for uh, Shara and then uh, Z S A D A N Y I, you'll find uh, Shara's posters or poster. The first one, certainly. The other ones for your colleague. Uh, so what we what we what were the main findings from your poster? So the main findings is that uh, people with Down syndrome have a much higher prevalence of microbleeds. And we were also looking at some associations with different AD, Alzheimer's disease biomarkers. Um, we were looking at some uh, neuroimaging biomarkers, the white matter hyperintensities that I will be presenting on Wednesday, and hippocampal volumes. And I was also looking at some CSF biomarkers and I was looking at a few cognitive tests as well. So we saw a few associations between the microbleeds. So with an increase of microbleeds, we had an increase in white matter hyperintensities, and we also had a decrease in the hippocampal volumes. Um, so this was all very exciting for me, and I went on to do some regression analyses and found that if many of the um, many of the associations stuck around, but surprisingly the white matter hyperintensity is not so much. So I'm going to be very interested to carry on doing this work and also to look at the regions that microbleeds appear in, in Down syndrome. Great. So we'll see more when you come back to AIC next year or ADPD, um, which of course will be before AIC. <laughs> um, any thoughts on what causes the microbleed? Why people living with Down syndrome experience more microbleeds in the first place? Very good question. So people with Down syndrome, um, from a very young age, they start to accumulate amyloid because of the triplication of the APP gene on chromosome 21. And so amyloid builds up in the small vessels and we call this cerebral amyloid angiopathy. And when this happens, it causes the vessel walls to become um, a little bit weaker and yeah, a little bit yeah. of blood to come out into the brain. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so go check that poster out uh, on the platform or um, you'll also see Shara wandering around the conference if you're there in person right now in a purple T-shirt. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Thanks very much. OK, so let's get on with today's highlights. Um, of course, the big news, the first big news, which I'm going to introduce when we can all have a little bit of a chat about, uh, was the report from Eli Lilly about the Trailblazer ALS2 clinical trial of denanumab and how effective this is in early symptoms of Alzheimer's disease. Um, I'm going to read this just so I don't make a mistake. Um, the three main bullet points that they gave away on their press release was that the beneficial treatment effect continued to increase relative to placebo over the course of the trial with the largest differences versus placebo seen at 18 months. They went on to say that study participants at the earliest stage of the disease had the greater benefit with 60% slowing of decline compared to placebo and significant benefits were also seen in advanced patients. I don't know if uh, if there were more detail. Obviously, I wasn't. I have to confess, I haven't watched all of this talk back. So I'm I'm guessing that there's more detail if you go back and watch this. 
uh, on what they mean by more advanced patients and at what point that kicked in. The third uh, point that they made was nearly half, 47% of study participants of the earliest stage of the disease who received anamab had no clinical progression at one year. So, uh, and the, the big difference on this drug compared to the other ones that the FDA have approved is that it's the treatment time. So you only take this until amyloid is cleared and then you stop taking it. Whereas the other ones, I think you continue to, to take it, I, is my understanding of, of this. And 52% of people who took this uh, drug uh, only actually participated for a year. So I'm guessing that it had cleared the amyloid within a, within a year, 72% within 18 months, um, which of course means that this is potentially significantly cheaper um, and of course doesn't have the same pressure. Uh, Aoife, I, I, you were there in person for some of this. Why, why don't you tell us what, what were the nuances? I've given you the headlines that came out of the press release. What, what have you got to add to that? Um, first off, it was just really exciting. I don't think I'd ever been in a hall that of that size before. Um, and then when the first slide came up of all of the the kind of the first top line data, like everyone started applauding, which was very exciting. Um, and what you said there about the coming off of the treatment, I think that's really, really interesting. And um, so they were monitoring the people, they continued to do so. And it was about, at, I think it was 47 weeks, people were able to come off because they had such a lowering of amyloid. Um, they came off of denanumab um, and then they were monitored again and it was still 70, it was 76 weeks later um, from beginning of the trial that they were still, but now off of the drug. So about, you know, 26 weeks later, still had lowering. Um, but then it's, it's what's going to be really interesting is to, to monitor these people long term and see, does amyloid creep back up again? How often will these people need to be monitored to see, will doses change or will you go back on on the drug? Um but like you said, it's it's could be cheaper for people then. Uh, doses could be changed. Uh, I think it does really highlight the importance of being able to um, measure. And we saw so much about biomarkers over the last two days that like if you were able to cheaply actually measure these people, that should go on go in hand with it. But that's the tricky thing is that's what makes some of these things so controversial is, is because whilst I think there's general agreement that amyloid has no place there and having no amyloid is better than having it you can also have it but not necessarily have alzheimer's so deciding when to treat is the is the tricky part i guess um and seeing that clinically impactful differences but these i mean the results are amazing i was interested in the bit about so 47 percent of study participants of the early received no clinical progress does anybody have any sense of how that compares to other drugs? I mean, is 47% um, – because I don't know if that meant that the other 53% did carry on or they just didn't get as good an effect. Um, and how does 47% effectiveness compare to, you know, is that good – I mean, it's great for this disease when there's nothing at all right, – nothing else out there. But how does that compare to other treatments is that a good stat i don't really get a sense it clearly it's i'm not making much sense am i but you know what i mean clearly it's good but how good is it compared to other treatments for other diseases i don't know the answer exactly to that question but i think what will when we see 
further trials that compare. So these are comparing a new drug against a placebo arm. Be fascinating to see the lecanemabs, the denanemabs comparing the new drugs comparing to these ones. Which we're not going to be too far away from, are you? Particularly Mm -hmm. if uh, regulators want to decide which one is the most cost effective, they're going to start to compare. So uh, Shara and uh, Sonata, have you you got any thoughts on this? No, except that it's great news. Mm -hmm. I think everybody can agree on that. It's very good to see that I've come into this field at such a good time where all the science is doing exactly what it needs to be doing, working towards a cure. Yep, I think that's the general consensus, isn't it? That this is is good news. I think the challenge now, and we've seen this, I think there was a, a paper, an opinion piece in the, I want to say the Lancet, but it could have been outside of the I know uh, Don Schott and Nick Fox published a piece today from UCL talking about the practical implications now. I mean, because it goes with this treatment there, it's great, but we've got, uh, potentially got to start using it. And how do we how do we implement something like that? We've got lessons from other diseases. We know that um, these therapies are delivered in other places, but we've got to learn from that and work how we upscale that, which I know um, ARUK is also campaigning for right now. You published a report last year, and um, I see the you're working with the Royal College of Psychiatrists for a series of workshops on that challenge. Yes, and we have one of we have a speaker at the conference on Wednesday. So Susan Mitchell, our head of policy, is going to be talking on a panel about system preparedness, uh, with a couple of other others. Um, the names I don't I'm not familiar with yet, but yeah, that's one to look out for on Wednesday. So how these healthcare systems can get ready um, in different countries for these new drugs. Brilliant. Well, that's the big headline takeaway. Congratulations to Eli Lilly for getting through that. Um, And so now let's move on and get some of your highlights. Um, Sonata, why don't you go first? Tell us tell us what you enjoyed most today. As far as I'm biased with a public patient uh, involvement. So I joined uh, the session on public and patient involvement in dementia research. And I enjoyed it. So there were presented uh, six presentations. They can be grouped into three groups, I would say. So uh, one group was uh, presenting national and very new patient public panels. So there was a project Netherlands, a Dutch project uh, abroad, which also launched PPI uh, panel just a year ago. And uh, there was the presenter explained uh, all the process, how they recruited uh, panelists and how successful they they assessed this process as successful. So they still have 55 panelists. And also what, what is, what is uh, important about maybe to say about this uh, session that it it may be very different from the rest scientific sessions, from the other scientific sessions, because each of these presentations were followed with people from these members of PPIs. So it's, it was very powerful, I would say. So each, so I, I, so this is the patient and public involvement global perspective session um, that Helen Bundy Mezga chaired. And I think the session you're talking about is the Tanya Dariki, um, who's at Amsterdam, Amsterdam UMC. So I didn't realise though, because I have to say I didn't attend this session. So after each of the science, uh, the kind of reason for doing PPE, a patient uh, or somebody living with a disease spoke after each of them. 
uh, or they were in person participating, like Chris Roberts, for example, for this abort project, there also was a member panel panel member who presented actually their what they are doing there and how they find the results, how they find their impact on on the uh, project implementation, on the process of of all research, and either it could be also videos, short, very informative. Uh, but uh, they all, in general, were like a part of panelists who expressed their thoughts, their experience in participating and importance of understanding and acknowledging their role in, in participation in these panels. That is great to see, because I think, I mean, historically, I, I don't think AIC had many um, people living with dementia or carers actually take to the stage. I mean, they might have done at the start to kind of set the scene or maybe at their closing parts or some of the fundraising. But to actually have people, multiple people in an individual session, I think might be the first time that that's done. And, and whilst PPI is going up the agenda, particularly at this conference, I don't think there's been one that's had been given such profile and such a platform on the big stage which is brilliant. I think uh, Anna Diaz from Alzheimer Europe was at that one, and Ira Leroy from GBHI, Trinity, Diana Gove, also from Alzheimer Europe, and Chris Roberts, of course, who's a f- friend of the show, been on here a few times before, gave a, uh, a great talk. I have to say, I did skip in and jump just to watch Chris's bit. So if you if you haven't seen that yet, do go and have a look. Although I'm a little bit sad to see that on the online platform, the people living with dementia who actually spoke their names aren't mentioned anybody anywhere in there um and they should be i think so go fix that <laughs> well is there anything else to add to that uh, sonata from that session what were your main kind of takeaways other than clearly ppi is important the notes which i made for myself that the uh, ppi involvement is uh, very important for increasing participation in research in uh, increasing engagement and trust actually in researchers in research of people from target groups and from a uh, general public so it's it's very important and also what uh, what was mentioned by uh, by chris by the way that it's it's beneficial for both their participation to, to the researchers and the input and insights they give, but also for those people to communicate with each other. They help to each other. And very important message, which he said that actually when he started to, uh, when he was invited to, to participate in research, he actually had a lot of doubts. Uh, but uh, when he started, he felt that he returned back his confidence. He, he, he started to feel valued again. And that is very important. And I think all too often we've thought of PPI as being something that's exclusively important to qualitative researchers or uh, or clinical researchers because they have to do study recruitment and having PPI will help study recruitment. And I think we're moving away from that now to think about where the public and people with lived experience can contribute in that fundamental science space as well, not just things about preventing falls or improving hydration in care homes. Watch this space for a podcast on that topic coming next month. Uh, so I, I think it's great. And I, I'm 
I really hope that that room wasn't just full of all the care researchers that are attending AIC, that some of the some of the basic scientists went and watched that as well. So if you're listening to this now and you're at the AIC or you're just watching online, please do take a moment to go watch the Patient and Public Involvement Dementia Research Global Perspectives session because it's a great way, to, if nothing else, to remind you why this is important and why you go into the lab each day and the, to, to have that direct line of sight between your work and the people that will benefit um, I think is really important. And, and so don't just kind of keep your head down in the lab. Do look up once in a while and see the people that are living with dementia because I think it, it can be incredibly motivating. Thank you, Sonata. And that's me off my high horse, <laughs> preaching of the values of PPI. Uh, Aoife, why don't I come to you next? What, what, what have you seen today that you enjoyed? I think Denanimab was such a big thing, but there was also so many other stuff happening on the conference. And I went to a neuroinflammation and neurodegeneration um, research session and there are a few different speakers. And I think what kind of kept cropped up time and time again was just that you, treating neuroinflammation um, would be really important alongside as a co-treatment with some of these disease modifying drugs. Um, and one area that I, I wasn't very familiar with, um, but I just found it very interesting is um, looking at um fibrin or fibrin um and it's a protein that's involved in coagulation cascades and blood clotting if i'm in case i need to be corrected but um they've shown that this fibrin protein um can build up around amyloid plaques um and like there's a deposition um of it but that this group are looking at an immunotherapy that to not target fibrin's role in coagulation but it also um, activates its uh, microglial receptor um, and so they're looking at that pathway um, I'm just kind of looking at my notes here but um, well, that sounds like a smart solution isn't it because I think yeah. there's a general conclusion you know a general agreement that the amyloid anti-amyloid therapies alone aren't going to solve this particularly mm -hmm. if you stop and the amyloid comes back but if you can put some immunotherapy on that as well although because that means we need to understand the fundamental cause of what's bringing them there in the first place yeah exactly and that you could the idea is that you could neutralize fibrin as a selective target for um regulation um, of Great. a particular microglial function is that still in um, mouse is that still in is that in mouse models yet so th this is actually one to look out for because it's in phase one healthy volunteers to start with wow. it's called i have the note it's a terini bio the researcher's name is katarina akasaglu i'm definitely butchering the surname <laughs> um but it, another interesting thing is that it's this blood brain barrier and you have blood leaks that could activate microglia. Um, so they're thinking that you could use this, it might increase efficacy and maybe decrease area pathology. Yeah, so it could be as like a, an anti-side effect treatment for something else that's going Yeah, on yeah, possibly. This is bonus. all speculative and like potential down the line, but they've definitely got the first stage clearly progressed if that's onto a phase one so mm -hmm. i guess they're only just starting that phase one trial there's no results from that yet no no but okay yeah, so watch. definitely one to keep an eye on yeah thank yeah. you Eva. uh shara well it's quite difficult to pick a highlight because <laughs> i am in that stage where everything is incredibly exciting um however i have been to quite a few very interesting talks today 
Um, but one thing that really stood out to me was the Ask session, actually, with the Lifetime Achievement Award winner, Bruce Miller. Bruce is brilliant. He's been on the podcast as well before. He's the UCSF and also the lead for the GBHI. Uh, and we did a podcast on GBHI a few weeks ago. Tell us about that. Yes. So, I mean, I I do feel like I'm bringing a lot of things together and, and making some connections, at least in my brain, um, for how we move forward with Alzheimer's disease. Um, Bruce strikes me as a very big picture guy. I guess that's in the job title of being part of GBHI and having so many years under his belt. Um, there were quite a few questions that he got about um, all the co comorbidities that can come along with Alzheimer's disease. Um, because of course we are talking about people who are getting on in age and have lots of vascular contributions. They may have some Lewy body, they may have Parkinson's and I found that very interesting and I really enjoyed, um, he answered a few questions where he was talking a lot actually about sleep and about exercise and the importance of these two things and trying to mitigate Alzheimer's disease potentially. So very, very interesting talk. And he seems like the sort of person who would be lovely to have a very long conversation with. I think inspiration for anybody who's thinking about applying for the GBHI fellowship program, which I think is still open right now, um, that you could find yourself next year at UCSF being taught by Bruce. I, I, I completely agree. I think he's a really engaging speaker. And I love that. I mean, the program is involved with GBHI in that they involve, you know, artists and musicians and poetry. And he talks about this kind of bigger enrichment picture and that he does talk about sleep and diet, um, which... To hear that from a neurologist uh, at that kind of s senior stage in their career is quite unusual to, to have that big pitch, you know, um, and he's a great speaker. I don't think those are the Ask sessions, sadly, aren't available online, are they? So you can't you can't go back and watch that. Uh, I'm going to bring up uh, now, I'm going to jump ahead and bring up the other big news today, which is the f uh, Alzheimer's. The first ever county level estimates of Alzheimer dementia prevalence were published, uh, which covered all 3,100 and some, well, 3,142 United States counties finally had their prevalence data shared. And the study found that East and Southeast regions of the US had higher prevalences of Alzheimer's disease. And this is using cognitive data from the Chicago Health and Aging project, the CHAP project, and population estimates from the National Center for Health Statistics. Um, they also picked on particular counties, and yeah, I mean, Miami-Dade County, Baltimore City, Bronx County uh, came out as having the higher prevalences, which can probably be explained because specific demographic um, characteristics. I think in the UK, you'd think that, you know, it'd be the equivalent of Bournemouth and places where older people uh, tended to live and retire to. Um, but the um, older age and higher percentages uh, also of black and Hispanic residents in those places where black and Hispanic residences, residents lived uh, had uh, were twice as likely to have Alzheimer's compared to older whites in those places. So that was particularly interesting, of course, anybody who's listening in the States, that all this data has been published in Alzheimer's and dementia today. Uh, so we'll pop a link to that in the show notes. But this is particularly important. I think in the UK, we're quite lucky there's been prevalence data for quite some time, although more on prevalence rather than instance, which is 
really poor. We don't report on incidents at all. You won't get incidents rates in the UK. We don't publish it. Um, so I think it's a great first step, but moving on to incidence rates is going to be important, particularly when you're starting to consider um, treatments and how many people are going to need this per year and those estimates, because those numbers just don't exist. So that was a hot one today as well. Um, and I'm going to go around again. We've got time. We've to you, Aoife, first of all. Aoife, what, what else do you want to share from today? I'm going to share something kind of short and sweet because it was a poster presentation that, pardon the pun, caught my eye when I was walking through. Um, it came from a PhD student and it was looking at tears, teardrops as a teardrops. biomarker no for Alzheimer's way. disease. Yeah, tears? Yeah. yeah this Wait, is really can you cool. imagine the process though? You have to make somebody cry. <laughs> I know and there's a whole this is a whole area I was not aware of Uh, there's a tier research network um, looking at lots of different diseases Um, so this student she works in um, Maastricht University so that would be in the Netherlands Um, and it's pilot data but they were able to detect like a beta 40, 42, tau, total tau, phospho tau in the teardrops um, and then they're looking at and they found that the total tau I'm reading my notes here now um, are significantly elevated, uh, elevated or higher levels in dementia patients yeah stunned yeah, silence from the yeah, audience amazing. wow um, so that's even easier than blood I mean I if that works well, why, why are we bothering with pinpricks and blood let's just little <laughs> little sniff of some smelling salts and, and you could drop a tear onto a card and get a wow yeah this would be amazing if it got yeah if it develops into something did they talk about are there any other diseases we measure through tears um so is it already clinically you know know, we got efficacy somewhere else yeah it's um they were looking so the other there's other groups looking at different diseases but they weren't familiar with them i'm gonna to have to do a bit of digging myself okay um, we need that poster everybody's got to go look at this poster now <laughs> yeah and actually i bumped into their colleague and he looks at um thickness of the um it was the retinal nerve fiber and that thickness can change so it's they're showing it to be thinner in Alzheimer's disease. That's really mm. interesting. Can yeah. you remember the name of the presenter so people yeah. can look that up? I'll tell yes. you what, I'm going to move on. I'll let Shara tell her highlights while you look that up <laughs> yeah. and, and I'll give you a minute. Shara, back to you. Well, first thing this morning, 8am, I was attending a talk about 7 Tesla MRI. Um, quite an interesting topic, actually, although they're not so many seven tesla mri scanners in the world um but yes as you can imagine they're very expensive (laughs) um one thing that really stood out to me there was a a talk at the end um about so they were mostly talking about covid survivors when they were talking about the 7t mri that they were looking at um and there was one talk about white matter hyperintensities Um, which I'm a big fan of, as you can probably tell, in COVID survivors. Um, And something that stood out to me was that she was talking about how 7T could be quite useful in being able to detect more subtle injury in the white matter hyperintensities. So I'm very interested to see 
all these higher Tesla MRI scanners and all the research that's coming out of it in the next few years. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm the, I mean, more MRI machines. I saw some stats this week that showed about how many MRIs the UK had when we were very behind in other parts of the world. Um, Sonata, I'm going to come back to, oh, oh wait, Ifra, did you find the name of that yes, speaker um, while we remember? Ninka van de Sandy. Right. Check that out about PhD researcher. Yeah. Sonata. <laughs> okay, I attended one more session on uh, sensory loss and sleep disturbances in persons with dementia and their care partners. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in uh, everything what is related with care partners as as, as far as I myself care. There were two talks about uh, sleep disturbances in care partners. Both uh, talks presented pilot projects, so it's a very initial stage of research. The samples also were very small, so it's, it's very difficult to do any generalized uh, outcomes of it. One research had only 70 ads uh, explored, the other one 30. Uh, but the first one didn't have. This This is very initial uh, data. It was interesting to hear that the sleep is bad for the caregivers, even if they are separated from their care recipients. So it's very interesting. But I think that uh, still for me as a carer, it's, it's not enough. I'm just looking for something what will be done with these uh, results. Of course, there, there are needed uh, much, much bigger and much longer researchers. But of course, I'm always uh, thinking what will be done with these results. I think it's an under uh, it's an under researched area. I would mm. imagine that not because of course we look at sleep off all too often in kind of a in that preventative kind of brain health space, don't we? As the importance of mm. sleep for clearing the brain at the end of the day, and it's you know we know that that's it's in the last few years that that's been found to be more important than ever. And then looking at that, but I don't think I've come across very much that looks that really looks at the importance of sleep for carers. Because, uh, you know, if you've got the full-time job of looking after somebody living with dementia and you're, you're at home and you have poor sleep, your capabilities to actually care for that person effectively and the risk of you then also going on to develop the disease yep. are particularly relevant. Is this the talk you're talking about? Is this the Yusong, Yusu song from yeah. VA Greater Los Angeles? Yes, yeah. the, this is the second one and there is uh, Mike Quick, I guess. So also uh, from... Oh, Mark uh, Quick uh, from yeah. University yeah. of Virginia. Yeah. quantifying so, care or sleep disturbances yeah, so using dynamic uh, it, it was interesting it was catching but uh, still very underdeveloped but uh, yeah I, I can really confirm that that is a, a problem when you it are an intensive well, carer <laughs> so many carer issues are overlooked aren't they uh, uh, and or dealt with in a separate space that don't consider them to be dementia research whereas actually the impact on carers is probably more significant than the person living with dementia themselves at that stage um so more research on this please um we've we've burnt through our time are there any burning talks that i you sh wanted to talk about that i didn't give you a chance to no good in that case uh, there is one last one i'm going to hold this up for those who are watching on YouTube, you can see this. The poster I'm going to talk about next looks like this. Um, and I'm going to mention this because I'm one of the co-authors on it. It's uh, Diana Karamakoska, um, who is a colleague of mine who 
we both collaborated on the iStart PIA to Elevate Early Career Researchers, and um, there's been a piece of work going on for quite some time now, but it's finally got this poster which compared uh, the G20 countries for how they support early career researchers and how early career researchers are or are not mentioned in their particular dementia strategies. You'd be pleased to know the US and UK did particularly well, but it compares all the countries from G20 to see what support they had um, for ECRs. Um, probably no surprise to see that there were lots of countries didn't have any mention whatsoever of support for EC. ECRs. I mean, they do provide funding for research, but they're not specifically mentioned as a group of people that need extra support or mentoring. Or, or there's certainly nothing in their national strategies, um, which I think is a, a real missed opportunity, given that they're the people that are driving these discoveries. So if you don't support the careers of researchers, how are they ever even going to be there to take advantage of the funding that you make available? Um, so that was a it's a great poster. Uh, do have a look online. It's Diana uh, Karamakoska, which is K A R A M A S, no C O S K A. Uh, um, or I think my name's on there as well, so you could look for Adam Smith. It might still bring it up. Um, so yeah, a little plug for our poster there. And if you're not already a member of the I Start PIA to Elevate Elgary Researchers, go join because you get the opportunity to be involved in great work like that. Phew! Right. Uh, we're going to have one last little segment where I'm going to talk to Sarah about um, her work because I'm no, I have no idea how she's actually found time to talk about anything today because she's also an iStart volunteer. So let's just ask a few questions about that. So, Sarah, you're not still wearing your purple T-shirt, but you're one of the people who've been running around at the conference wearing one um, because you're an a iStart ambassador. Um, what does that, what is that? What's, what's that mean? Well, it's um, actually very exciting. Um, I'm so, so happy to have been given this opportunity. So I am currently working with a whole cohort of ambassadors for this year until mid next year. Um, and so mainly our roles here have been to make sure that everything runs as smoothly as it possibly can. So um, if you've been at the conference, you've probably been able to see people in purple shirts running around quite a bit. Um, and we've also been in all of the talks trying to make sure that the speakers know what they're doing and that we can help with the AV team to make sure that everything has been running as smoothly as possible. Um, and yeah, it's been wonderful. The other ambassadors have been so lovely to work with. How many of you are there? I believe it's 25. I could so, be wrong about that. So t this is 25. Anybody can apply for this. And the application is usually open toward the start of the year. And then you get to go to AIC. They cover all the costs of that. And it doesn't preclude you from presenting either because you've as yes. you say, you've got posters. I guess it was. Yes. I guess you don't necessarily get to go to every session you might want to see because you go to wherever you go. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I was not able to attend in person the Donanamab today um, because I had other things that I needed to go and get done. But we do get a choice to go to specific sessions. Perfect. So, if there's one that's really for your research field, you can state a preference as well. Yes, absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, and th this, of course, is just the start because you have the whole mm -hmm. year then where there are other events. And I know that they provide extra training and sessions for you all. And so it's, I guess you're going to find all that out over the coming year. 
Yes, and we're very active on social media at the moment. Anywhere where there is the hashtag AIC23, you'll be able to see somebody who is a purple shirt. And yeah, I'm very excited to see where the rest of the year takes us. Great. So I've given Shara a chance to plug her thing. Aoife, is there anything going on at AI? You've got a big reception. I'm, I'm not sure when this podcast yes. will come out. It's either going to come out today or tomorrow morning, but which is still plenty of time to sign up. If you're in the Netherlands, if you're in Amsterdam right now, you could, is there still places on your reception? The networking reception is with the, oh, with places. I think we're at full capacity now. Oh, um, okay. I shouldn't have mentioned yeah. that. Then, <laughs> but just turn up, just turn up, just yeah, go, knock on the door, say, you know, Aoife and yeah. Aoife said it was okay. <laughs> and they'll let you in. Is there free, is there free wine? I assume there's wine. Yes. And nibbles. Um, and it's with other so it's with the Alzheimer's Society, the Dementia Research Institute and the Dementia Platforms UK. So we're all co-hosting a networking event. But it's, it's incredibly irresponsible of me to, to say go. <laughs> and, and, but have a look in your Twitter. You could always fill in the form. You never know. There might be a wait list. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I just yesterday seeing thousands of people. I think if anyone gets the chance to go to one of these kind of smaller offshoot events, it's just that little bit of a smaller crowd, you might get to chat to more people and not as overwhelming as the big thousands that arrived yesterday. I completely agree. I think one of the one of my best bits, I mean, obviously I'm not at the AI scene person this year, but um, one of my favorite bits is the kind of socializing and the networking. And that's where so mm. much of the connections and things that we've made, so many podcast guests and people who've contributed to dementia research over the years have come from chance conversations in, in a bar or at a reception after the AIC. So do take the chance to go look at those. Sonata, I, 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 have you got anything lined up for the rest of the week? Is there anything particular that you're going to be looking forward to on the rest of the conference? Uh, yes, uh, tomorrow I, I guess it's uh, more like a dementia care uh, practice session. So I will be tuned for half of a day at least <laughs> and spend uh, next to my computer. Brilliant. Well, do you know what? I also didn't acknowledge just, I, I imagine it's quite late in Lithuania right now. So I'm really sorry if I've kept you up. <laughs> yes. And I know it's getting on past 10 o'clock in the night in the Netherlands as well. And I'm keeping you both from the bar, I imagine. So I'm going to wrap things up there. Thank you so much to my incredible guests, uh, Shara Sherdani, uh, Dr. Eva Cosgrave and Sonata Machuski. Uh, for all your amazing contributions and for sharing your highlights with us today. Um, we're going to be back tomorrow with day three and tune in. I'm Adam Smith and you've been listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. The Dementia Researcher podcast was brought to you by University College London with generous funding from the UK National Institute for Health Research, Alzheimer's Research UK, Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Association and Race Against Dementia. Please subscribe, leave us a review and register on our website for full access to all our great resources. DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk